0: Sweet friends, I have an incredible guest for y'all today, and he is actually my third male guest on the show. I've only had my husband and my brother, so in a way, I feel like Travis is my first male guest, but man, is his story powerful. Travis Sackett is the author of My Life with Karma, a memoir about his life and struggle with addiction and how he overcame so many obstacles to become successful in his recovery and how he found salvation. I'm telling you in the coolest way. God is just so good. Spoiler alert too, his story involves a rescue dog and you're you're going to have tears. It's just... Ah, so good. But before we get into the interview, thank you so much for listening to the Failing Awesomely podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Garcia, and this is my second bonus episode this year. Last month, I ended season two of the show and I will have brand new episodes in the new year when season three kicks off January 5th, 2022. There's a chance I might have more bonus episodes before the end of the year, But for the most part, I really want to shut things down, enjoy the holidays with my family and close friends, and come back fresh in the new year. I want to take time and read some books, including My Life with Karma, which you can purchase on Amazon. I'll have that link in the show notes. I want to binge Christmas movies, and I just really want to lay low and enjoy this time. And I hope you all give yourself permission to do the same this Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's strange to put it that way, give yourself permission. But that's what we have to do sometimes, isn't it? So let me put it this way. Allow yourself some time to slow down the rest of this year. There, that's better. Make sure you check out the show notes so that you know how to stay connected with me and how to connect with Travis and buy his book. I really hope you're as moved by Travis's story the way I was. God bless y'all, and I'll see you in the new year. Please welcome Travis Sackett to the show. Say what you want, all I hear is- Thank you so much for being on my show, the Failing Awesomely podcast. I'm so, so grateful to have you. I cannot wait for my listeners to hear your story and just hear your heart. Um, Travis Sackett is the author of My Life with Karma. It is a book that you can get on Amazon, and I will have that linked in the show notes for you. I know, Travis, that I read in your bio that you struggled silently for a really long time with addiction and mental illness and so much more that we're going to talk about today. And I can't wait to tap into, but now you felt like you had to put pen to paper and write this memoir, my life with karma, so that you could be a voice for others who are suffering similarly. So to start off, could you tell us just a bit about you and your life prior to healing from, from these things and before writing this memoir?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, Lindsay, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, listened to a few of your shows recently, and then I binged I, like 30 episodes, so Aww. love it. Um, Anyway, after that, I just really wanted to connect, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, with that, I will jump into my background. So it is... It's intense. Um, I did dignitary protection for one of Wisconsin's governors. I think that's where I'm going to start with my story. Um, because at that point in time I was sober. So, um, and it just seems like a good jumping off point anyway. So I was doing dignitary protection and I was really big into powerlifting at the time too. Just like huge powerlifting was my life outside of work. Um, and So I was doing that and I had qualified for, first of all, a regional powerlifting tournament. So here I am, I'm doing the dignitary protection, working nights, and then powerlifting. And at regionals, I set some records for like the state of Wisconsin and for law enforcement. So it's really cool. And I qualified for Worlds. So qualifying for Worlds was like oh my gosh, this is my dream. I want to pursue yeah. this. This is, yeah, this is so cool. Um, in doing that though, I got an injured training and it wasn't horrible, but I knew it was something, it was something structural and it was with my back. Um, yeah. And I had waited, I waited, I tried to train through it, tried to work through it. Um, and then, um, basically one day at work, we were moving some heavy coolers and I just twisted the wrong way and that was it and I, I felt it, and I'm like, okay, this is not good, so I ended up with an L4, L5 back injury, where mm-hmm. um both discs were basically, they're bulging, and one was ready to erupt, so not not good, mm-hmm. um but because I qualified for Worlds, and because I was still young, and relatively stupid at the time, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go after this, I'm still going to pursue my dream, even though my back is, basically needing surgery. So I got put on Oxycontin at the time. Uh Um, Yeah, exactly. So I get put on it, not knowing anything about the drug, only that it's supposed to be this miracle drug for pain. And okay, great. So I'm like, I'll, I'll take it. So I got 30 days at first. And in those 30 days, I mean, it, it worked as prescribed. Like I was still able to lift weights with this injury with a support belt, but still able to do close to what I was doing before the injury. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe I don't need surgery. Maybe I can just take this pill and continue to live. And that's what I did. So I worked and I lifted that way for, Uh, First, it was 30 days, and then they gave me an additional 90 days. So they gave me 90 days, and that's when, I guess, during that 90-day period, I started realizing that I had some issues with the medication in terms of the cravings. Like, when I was clock-watching, just like, okay, when's the next time I can take this pill? Um, that That was the first time. The second sign too was I was with the wife that I, I with the wife that I was with at the time. Um, I was not honest with her about the medication and about how often I was taking it, what I was doing on it. Like I, I was just lying about everything. So that was another huge red flag. Like okay, I can't be honest with people about this, and I'm having cravings. Um, so after ninety days. Of getting into this relationship with this medication, um, the doctor that I'm going to says, hey, Travis, we're going to have to cut you off. Like you either you need to have surgery or you basically we need to put you on something like a Tylenol three, you know, and we're going to cut you off. And to me at that point in time, I didn't realize how much that really meant. Um, I, I think I was just like, okay, so I'm going to get cut off. Not a big deal. I'll be able to handle this. And I couldn't handle it. Um, I was, I was so like, I, I had formed such, like I said, a relationship is what I call it with that drug that it's, it was so unhealthy and that I was craving it so much. I went to an outside source, like um, a dealer, essentially. So okay. here I am. I'm a police officer, and now I'm working with the dealer. Like this is not a good scenario. Whatsoever. So you are,
0: you were already a police officer at this time.
1: I was, yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. So. And when you were cut off from it, did you feel? Was it, was the intense pain of the injury, what made it really difficult or it was the addiction? Like it was, were you experiencing withdrawal only having had it for what, 120 days about?
1: Yeah. So it was, it was a bit of both to be honest, like psychologically, I mean, I was hooked. Like I, I was as deep as I could be in it and it was, I, I couldn't get myself out of those cycles, like of thinking, like I just couldn't break it. Um, and then physically, all of a sudden, I went from not feeling anything to now I'm feeling everything. And I I wouldn't say because I I went through withdrawals later on in my life. So I wouldn't say I was withdrawing, but I would definitely had some signs of like, okay, there there could be I guess withdrawal here. If I were to continue to use the drug.
0: Okay, so, I understand. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, moving forward, so you you started going to a dealer. How? I mean, how did you obtain a dealer, and how did you kind of keep that quiet? What What was the next cycle like for you in this in this relationship?
1: It was. It was all facades and all lies, to be completely honest, Um, because I couldn't be I had to be one way at work. Obviously, I had to be another completely different way when I was at home with my wife and then I had to be a completely different person with the dealer. Who and you asked how okay, how I a relationship with a dealer. So it was actually someone that I was working out with at the gym from time to time. Who I then had found out that he was dealing some different things like marijuana, things like that. Nothing, anything real, I guess, class wise, like nothing that would really like ring big alarm bells, but. Mm -hmm he said he could get scripts in terms of prescription meds and that's what I was interested in. Um, and I, so I'm not sure how he was obtaining those. I know eventually, um, I ended up getting vet grade stuff from him that was being brought in from Canada. Um, so I was getting, yeah, it got, it got really scary, um, and really deep, but, anyway so the relationship it developed from we were friends like lifting wise like we'd see each other at the gym to then we were talking in the locker room more to now all of a sudden he can supply not the oxy but other scripts that were similar I think I bought Vicodin from him a few times um a couple other prescriptions that were for pain, basically anything that I could get pain related, I was willing to put in my body. Um, that even included horse butte at one point in time. Um, I was taking one-sixth the dosage of what you would give a horse, um, wow. while I was power lifting. I know. Right. So it just, it got that bad
0: at the time did you think it was somewhat innocent because you were trying to manage your pain
1: um i i think and not necessarily innocent but i think it started off as an innocent relationship and i looked at it like okay well this this drug can't be that bad if it's coming from my doctor like True. it just so where it got funky, and where things really went bad, like I kind of alluded to before, was where I couldn't be honest about how I was taking it, or when I was taking it, and how often, like, those are all huge flags. And those were all those things where all of a sudden, like, I was lying to protect a relationship with a drug over any other relationship I had.
0: Yeah, so you, you knew that pretty pretty quickly into the relationship with the drugs
1: yes definitely
0: so then how did that affect your job how did that start to start to affect that because I know that you talk a little bit in your memoir about being a police officer and then you you dive into some of the struggles with I mean I haven't read the story so could you explain that part a little bit
1: well i talk about a lot when it comes to even police culture and how hard it was to try to open up to anyone else anyone i worked with it was just it felt impossible because i'm like okay instantly i'm going to be judged so there were like there was that stigma and then too as soon as i started acting criminally and working with a dealer all of a sudden i'm now I'm the problem. I'm the bad guy, so to say. So it really, at first it was just all relationships kind of eroded. Like I, I stopped talking to people. I really just kind of isolated. Um, actually not kind of isolated. I really isolated. Um, it was just, I just pulled back from everything and everybody. And like to be completely honest, no one really reached out. It was Mm -hmm. just, I think people just thought I was busy lifting at the gym and preparing for worlds and no one really ever kind of checked in. And in return, I didn't check in with anybody. I didn't have an accountability person. It was just me. And like my accountability was, well, I'm still going to work. I'm still maintaining a job. So I looked at it like, well, I'm still putting checks in enough boxes that I'm functioning. I just have this hidden relationship with this drug I can't tell anyone about and a dealer. You know what I mean? And the list just started to build on the other side. And it's yeah. I go, go
0: ahead. No, I love that you talk about it in that way because that it this is this is the silent addiction. This is the the part of addiction that a lot of people don't understand. When I came out and said that I, I became sober and that I used to have a really bad relationship with alcohol, people were shocked by it. And I'm like, <laughs> I was still functioning. I was still able to be a mom, be a wife, take care of the home, you know, do the things that I needed to do, maybe not as well as I do now, of course, but I was still functioning. And I think that that is what's so hard for some people that are in our lives. It's, it's like unless something completely explodes in our life and we get a DUI or we get caught or, you know, if something like that happens, people people just don't see it and they don't understand it. And I I love that you shared that part of your story because I've shared so much, you know, related to alcoholism, but not um, drug abuse or addiction because I just haven't had anybody like you on yet. And I think it's so important to have this conversation because we just don't know. And I hope that and I, I just I know that somebody is going to hear this that needs to hear it, because we tend to think when we are addicts and when we are in deep in the addiction, that if we're functioning, then maybe we aren't addicts. Maybe we're doing OK. Maybe this even though we see all the red flags, maybe this isn't as bad as we think it is. And that's a lie we tell ourselves.
1: Oh, it totally is. And you hit it right on the head. When you say, okay, so we see the red flags, but we don't pay attention to them because at at some point we can still justify, well, I'm functioning and I'm doing A, B, C, and D. And that's really just, it's not enough to be able to make that distinction. You can't make it on that. And if you're doing that, I think that may be a time where you need to question yourself and really stop and think like, okay, why, why am I telling myself this narrative? And is this the truth? Or is this something that I've kind of concocted in my head to protect something else?
0: 100%. So fast forwarding a little bit, when did things start to implode? Like when obviously you are sober now, you've written this book, you've had a lot of other things happen in between. So what was the shift?
1: The shift was when I could no longer afford to pay a mortgage and to pay for an addiction. Wow. Um, that's And I began stealing. So I was still, I wasn't, I was actually in a different position, still working for a different police department at the time, only a, in an unsworn position. So I wasn't technically a police officer anymore, but I was still affiliated with the police department and I began stealing to support my addiction. Um it started with credit card information and it basically well it ended with credit card information too because I was not a good criminal at all. Um just horrible. Like I you know yeah I laugh about it too because I'm like <laughs> wow. Like I but it really goes to show how desperate I was yeah. because I was doing things that were morally and polarly opposite of what I would normally do. And yet I'm trying to make these things work just so that I can take a pill. Like it's it's crazy. Like when when you look at it that simply, it's just like, yes, that is sheer insanity. But anyway, so really what happened was I couldn't afford to do both anymore. And so I stole, and I stole more, and eventually one day I got caught, um, and I didn't get caught in the act, I got caught at work. So I got called into a lieutenant's office, and there was a detective and two police officers waiting for me, and that's, that's basically when things hit, hit one rock bottom in my life, so...
0: So what what happened in that meeting when you got pulled in and what were the consequences?
1: Okay, so immediately I well they threw down like the thickest police file that I think I've ever seen and they're like, "Okay, well this is what we know about you. This is, you know, what we have." And they wanted me to talk and I refused to talk without an attorney, which just because I knew I had to protect myself. I'm like, I'm in no position to say anything anyway. um, So uh, after that, they basically said, well, you're being arrested for um, false representation and misdemeanor theft. And they had, well, 14 total counts because each time I did it, it had two counts, one theft and one false representation.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, so i racked up quite the counts very quickly. Um, And so that's what I was arrested for. And what I remember most from that day was not really what necessarily being arrested or anything like that. But when I got taken out of the police station, just like the looks from the other officers, it was like I never felt lower than that because it's like just, I mean having having been on the other side of it, like I definitely think some of them looked at like I betrayed the badge. And mm-hmm. it was a very it like it still bothers me today. It still mm-hmm. sticks with me just just those those glances. Um yeah.
0: And that must have been hard too because and I I didn't, I wasn't going to get into this yet, but I feel like this is a really good segue to ask about this because one of the topics that you talk about in your book is the power of empathy in changing perceptions. And I'm sure that the way that the other officers, your, you know, the, the, the men and women that you worked with looking at you in a different way and not fully knowing your story was so hard because I really feel like so many people in this world have an addiction. Maybe everybody has an addiction. I don't know that I can say that, but addicted to something. Some things are illegal. Some things aren't illegal, um, but everybody has the capacity, I think, to become addicted to something, and it's really hard to have empathy when your story is just different from somebody else's
1: and I think that's oh go ahead
0: no no go ahead
1: no I was gonna say I think once again you hit it on the head like that's so true because so often we're because we live our own stories every day so we're caught in the cycles I mean you of being a mama, you of doing your thing. I mean, it's just, you get in these cycles. And so that's what you see repeatedly in front of you. So all of a sudden you see something opposite of that and it's hard to relate, like I totally get it, but that doesn't mean we can't be empathetic toward it. Like it may not, it it may feel so foreign to try to relate to someone in that position. But the way I look at it was I never, wanted to become an addict. Like I never sat down and said, look, this is what I want out of life. This is my goal. Like, let me go after this. Right?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one ever sets out wanting this path. Like, ah, you know, I think an addict that's, that's what I want to do. That's pretty much, that would be a really, really good success uh, rate for me. You know, that'd be something I'd be proud of. No, nobody ever goes into it thinking that.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and like the way I think from that is, so if I didn't want this, yet this is the path that I ended up going down, then what is going on with someone else? Like, what is their path? And where are they on that path? And I think now I'm able to look at it when I was an officer, it was always just black and white. It was okay did an infraction occur and what state statute was it? And you go on from there. And, and now it's it's just walking in that gray area all the time because I'm like, okay, that's really where we need to meet people mm-hmm. is in the middle and in that gray. So um, it's just, I think it's it's such a different way of looking at, at life and looking at people on a person to person basis.
0: Absolutely. I love that you said that, man. I think it's hard in that profession to not have to see things sometimes in black and white, but our system rarely, I should say, our system rarely gets in the middle, in the shades of gray to really understand the depth of a person and the timeline of events that took place to get them where they were because the law is the law and we can't show favoritism. And although I, I get that there, there needs to be more people like you out there trying to advocate and give a voice to people who never saw their life ending up this way. They're not bad people. They, they, took one action that caused a series of events and, and then they ended up where they ended up and it's unfortunate, but there needs to be a better way for them to be able to turn it around. And I can see that you have, so you were arrested. What, what happened then? Were you in jail for a certain period of time or, or what did that look like?
1: OK, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I will give you I will give you that answer, though. So I was in jail. Um, I served about 90 days in jail in the same county that I used to be an officer in. So it was definitely not a cakewalk by any means. Um, pretty much had to, once again, put on a facade and hide who I was, hide what I used to do. Um, Fortunately, in the time between like court and everything, I had a different job. So I was able to say I was a server at a restaurant instead of saying, oh, yeah, I'm a police officer or was. um, Yeah. But anyway, so fast forward, I got sober once and I was doing well. Um, Sober for about a year. So I got into grad school and I was going to be a community counselor. That was my goal. Um, started grad school, had, did well. Um, got through two semesters, had a solid GPA, and things were going well. And then basically, I relapsed. Um, it and it wasn't. It wasn't a relapse that I saw coming. It was, I. It more or less felt like I was riding this high in life, and then I was riding a bigger high in life, and it was hard to explain at the time. I couldn't really put like put a pin in it. I couldn't really tell you what it was. Um, eventually, I'll, I'll just say I was diagnosed um, bipolar. So. It, it, it eventually made sense to me. But at the time, I had no idea that I was going into like a state of mania. So I hadn't slept for almost two days. And this, this was like, yeah, it was horrible. So I hadn't slept for almost two days. And uh, I had been working on like some wood project or something in my garage and then decided just on a whim that I was going to go out. So I ended up going out about a a mile away from my house to a bar that I passed a thousand times before and went and decided that, okay, well, as long as I don't use like any hard drugs, if I just drink, it will be okay. Mm
0: -hmm. Well,
1: one drink became four drinks and then four became eight. And before I knew it, it was bar close and I, in my infinite drunken wisdom, was like, oh, I can make it home, so I got in my car and tried to drive the mile home. Um, Coming into my neighborhood on the last turn, I ended up crashing my car into the curb, so not, not great, but definitely not horrible. I mean, I didn't hurt anyone, which was a blessing, to be honest. I mean, thank God for that. Yes. And the only thing I heard was a car. So it's like, okay. So I got out of the vehicle, looked at the damage, tried to drive the car off the curb and was like, yeah, this is not going anywhere. Um, and at around that time, I proceeded to get sick. Um, mm-hmm. So I went and I threw up in someone's bushes mm-hmm and then went, leaned against a car, threw up again, and set off a car alarm. So now I have a car alarm going off, my car pitched up on the curb, and a neighbor that is irate coming outside, and rightfully so. I mean, what am I doing? I'm a complete mess. And So I hear this guy yelling and screaming. I try to run and hide behind a vehicle, which I'm a big dude. I'm (laughs) over six feet, 220 pounds. Hiding is not a good option for me. But (laughs) once, once again, I'm intoxicated. So I'm like, okay. Then I proceeded to open the car door of the vehicle I was hiding behind and try to hide in the front seat. At that point in time, the individual saw me, came over, and started screaming profanities at me to get out of the car. So I at first locked the doors, was like, I'm not getting out of the car. And eventually the guy seemed to calm down a bit and I'm like, okay, I'll get out. I tried to explain, look, I'm drunk, I live up the street, whatever. Um, He was not having my explanation. Um, apparently at the time, according to the police report, it said I lunged at him. I think I took a drunken stumble because I was not trying to fight whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And he proceeded to hit me with a Meg light. Um, one of the big oh. giant mag light flashlights. Oh so, goodness. um, yeah, so I actually, uh, fractured my skull in three different places Um, I had, yeah, I had air that reached my brain cavity. So I had to be, and I had a broken nose. Like it was, it was really bad. Um, Um, I could have died and it was all over being drunk and stupid. So basically, um, the police were called. I was then rushed to one hospital, once they saw the extent of my injuries at that hospital, I was taken to a second hospital, and the next day I um, had well two surgeries: one to repair my skull, and then another one to expel the air from my brain cavity. So, so wow, yeah, Travis. so I right, yeah, so I suffered a traumatic brain injury that night, um, which I still. I still suffer the effects from i i'm actually i'm fully disabled like i i can still use my limbs but in terms of like being disabled i have no short-term memory so i'll remember like yeah i'll remember we talked tonight but i won't remember about what like you could ask me the same question in like five minutes and i'd have no idea that i already answered
0: that question oh my goodness I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to ask, was this the first, so was this the first occurrence in your relapse? Like you made the decision to go to the bar and this all happened in that first night. And before that you had been sober for what you said about a year.
1: Yeah. It was just, it was like a year and a month, I believe like to the day. Yeah.
0: And one, one decision and Led this, to all, that. all of this happened. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah.
1: And then too, I was on, so I was on probation at the time from my thefts. So then my probation got revoked while I was in the hospital. Um, so I was given two days to recover. And then I immediately went from the hospital to Dane County Jail. And at the jail, they don't have medical. It's not big enough. They don't have a medical wing. So they put me into segregation, which in the jails is the same as their solitary confinement. So I went from the hospital to solitary confinement. And I spent, the yeah... And I spent the next seven days um, in solitary trying to recover until I was deemed fit for general population from for the jail. Wow. So one hard life lesson turned into an extremely difficult life lesson. And basically from there. After having my probation revoked, um, I had to wait, like it was just sit and wait to see what I'm going to be sentenced when I have to go in front of the judge. So I ended up doing all my recovery in jail for my brain injury. So I did my own PT, um, my own, I had to reteach myself how to write and I was really struggling with speech. Um, wow. I still have a hard time with some words, like I, I'll i have what's called aphasia, where I get stuck on certain words, like oh. I can picture them in my head, but I just can't get them out. Um, but anyway, so I had to basically reteach myself all the all the basics. Um, and that's, to be honest with you, too, that's when I found God in my life, hmm. um, when I was at the absolute lowest of lows because one of the only books on the jail cart at the time was the Bible. Hmm. So I ended up, I took the Bible, not even necessarily intending on reading it, but just like using it to help me write out letters and like kind of trace them different things. And I ended up, that's where I started reading the Bible was in jail.
0: So that chokes me up and also lifts my spirit to no end. Wow. Travis. Um, number one, I have to say the fact that you had to do your own PT, that is incredible and just shows what the love of the Lord can do in your life. When you start to even just, you know, as, as the Bible puts it, planting the seeds, that's kind of, even though it wasn't really intentionally looking for faith. It was to help you with words and, and reading and writing and speaking again and, and all of that. Um, But I, that's just such a powerful story of redemption right there. Even when you were in the thick of it. And I just, I love that so much. Um, and Another thing that I wanted to touch on too, as far as your relapse, especially since you had talked about being diagnosed with bipolar, but you didn't, you still didn't know at the time that all this happened.
1: No, I actually didn't know like until a few years ago to be like about, I think four years ago, I received my diagnoses. So yeah, it was, and, and all this occurred like well, around 10 years ago. So that's, yeah. So timeline wise, that's what we're looking at. So there was like another six years in there where I, I wasn't diagnosed. And basically I think a lot of it was, it was hard, especially after the head injury um, because there were so many new normals that like, it was like, okay, I would, reach one threshold and then be told, well, for example, okay, so you've got your speech back, you've got writing back, but you're not going to get, let's say, memory back. And then it would be like, okay, well, I want to challenge that. I want to see, God willing, can I, what can I do? Can I do these brain games? What can I do elasticity-wise? to try to overcome that. But that's, I kept feeling like it was hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. Mm -hmm. And like where things finally got easier was when I finally met the wife that I'm married to now. Um, And yeah, because she was really kind of willing to look at the whole person and work with me on the level that like I needed because I needed someone else in my life. And aside from, well, the book is My Life with Karma because the only thing that I had for so long was a dog named Karma. Um, So until my wife came along, it was just me and Karma. And I would tell like, I would tell Karma the tales that I'm telling you now because that was my companion. So, Anyway, like my life really didn't start to get easier until I met Vanessa and with meeting Vanessa, too, I was then I was truly introduced to the Lord, Um, because, for example, her idea of a fun Friday night is. Bible study with her sisters which is awesome I, I am not yeah <laughs> I know right that's what she said when I listened to a few of your podcasts she's like oh my god I love her oh, and I'm like yeah I, I I've got so. I've got to
0: meet her I've got to meet her <laughs>
1: yeah for sure oh. so she's amazing just an amazing woman and really like helped me in terms of building a an actual relationship with God where I didn't even think that would ever be possible. And she's like, no, you have no idea. Like, you are just limiting yourself, like, to what is infinite possibilities, because it's God, like, and she always tells me, don't put a cap on what God can do. Because I'm very, like, realistic. I'm always like, okay, what can I see? What can I touch? What is tangible? Where she's like, you have to have faith. And That's for me, that's the biggest thing is just growing in that faith.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to have to have a part two with Vanessa. (laughs)
1: That's that's fair. I think so.
0: That would be amazing. We're going to have to set that up for sure.
1: Sounds good.
0: (laughs) So let's let's go back a little bit, though. How did karma come in your life?
1: So karma in the midst of actually me being an addict, um, through my dealer at the time said he knew I liked dogs. And one of our conversations at the gym was, hey, I, I see this dog and it's, it's I think it's a pit bull. It's something like that. I know you love, you know, like pitties. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And it's chained to this tree at this house. I don't think they take care of it. You may want to check it out. And I was like, okay. So one weekend I decided, okay, I'm just gonna swing out. Like, and I told them, text me the address. I'll go see what this is all about. And as I'm approaching this house, I see this poor, just sad looking, like I couldn't tell if it was a pity, a boxer. I had no idea what kind of dog it was, just chained to this big old oak tree. And I'm like, okay. And I stopped the car and I kind of look and I see there's a dish, but there's no water. There's, you know, the dog has nothing and it's like severely underweight, just horribly emancipated and just not, not, I mean, emaciated, sorry, not emancipated, emaciated, (laughs) but just, just in, in the worst shape. So, and at the time I'm still a cop. So I'm like, I'm going to knock on this door and just see what's going on. And I knock and no one answers. And I knock again, no one answers. And I see the blinds move. And I'm like, okay, so somebody is clearly checking me out. They know what's going on. And I'm like, well, if no one's going to answer, there's not too much I can do about this. Like, And I turn and as I'm going to leave, I looked at the dog again. And I'm like, if I don't do something, this dog's going to die. So instead of going home, I decided to go to a hardware store and I got a bolt cutter and I just went back and I knocked on the door again. And I said, Hey, um, I don't know. I have money. Like, I don't know if you want money, but, um, if you don't want money, I'm taking your dog. So I literally went, took the bolt cutter, cutter free from the tree. And after a little bit of careful negotiation. We'll say I got her into the car. So, and that's how I ended up getting karma. Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness. So how was taking care of this wonderful animal helpful in your life and in your recovery? And how does that tie into the story? I mean, it's beautiful how you rescued this dog, but how does that tie into your story?
1: That's such an awesome question Because it made me care about something other than myself, like, to be completely honest. And it got me out of that cycle of just thinking about me and my needs. And finally, like, and two, it stopped thinking about a drug on top of it. Because she needed so much work, like karma. She came with, I mean, there was no instruction manual. I had no idea what I was going to do with a rescue dog. But, um, you know, I figured it out and I think the biggest thing was just getting outside of my own head and out of my own way. And finally, like I said, caring for something more than, than just me. Yeah.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness. That is so, so amazing. I, gosh, I just love your story and I'm so thankful that we connected Um, on Instagram. And man, sometimes, you know, I have lately been really struggling with social media and because there's so much good that can come out of it, but there's a lot of bad and negativity that can come, come out of it too and come from it. And I'm, I'm kind of teetering on that line of not really loving social media right now, but you and I connected on there very recently and I just know that God was in that because he, he your story needs to be told. And I just I cannot wait to share your story and for people to buy your book. And I'm gonna buy your book. I can't wait to read it. I am so happy to know you, Travis, and thank you so much for being on here. Before we go, it was there, is there anything else that you wanted to share or is there um, any advice that you would want to give to somebody that maybe has is walking a similar path that you did?
1: I think the biggest thing is that nobody ever recovers alone. And by that, I mean, reach out like to anybody. By all means, please, even worst case, reach out to me on Facebook. I mean, as bad as social media can be, let's be real. I would rather hear from someone than have someone struggle the way I did. And to feel as alone as I felt at times, I I never want that for anybody else. So even if you think people may not be listening or people may not be connecting, I think sometimes the hardest part is to make that first outreach, that first move, so to say. But if you can do it, the rewards can just be beyond what you believe,
0: so. 100%, no, I completely agree. Ah, oh, Travis, thank you so much for being on the show, everything, all the ways that you can get in touch with Travis and buy his book, my life with karma are all going to be linked in the show notes. So I will have all that information there, Travis. I just appreciate it so much. You are such a blessing.
1: Lindsay, thank you so much for having me on.